Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Jules Polonetsky, who serves as CEO of the Future of Privacy Forum, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that seeks to advance responsible data practices. He is also co-chairman of the Israel Tech Policy Institute. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Jules, thanks so much for sitting down to talk to us today. Good to be with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on privacy? Um, fate, luck. Um, I, uh, when I started out uh, my career, uh, there was no such thing as a career in privacy. Um, the, the role I had for many years as a chief privacy officer certainly didn't exist when I was, uh, you know, in college or, or even in law school. Uh, I really stum- stumbled into it. I um, started out as a lawyer at a big firm. I um, went into local politics when I realized that proofreading real estate leases wasn't an exciting uh, way to spend my day. <laughs> and I, um, I, I liked I liked architecture and buildings, so somehow somehow thought that that was a reasonable thing to do with a law degree. It it, uh, it wasn't. Um, and I uh, discovered this world of local politics where you could show up um, in uh, Brooklyn where I lived and say, "I'm here to." volunteer. I'm, I'm here to help. Um, you know, uh, that candidate looks good and, and people would be eager to have you. Um, and it, it's, I was lucky. It's not like that everywhere. Uh, there's a famous story about a guy who showed up in uh, Chicago and said, um, Hey, I'm here to help. I want to volunteer. And the uh, people in the campaign clubhouse said, who sent you? He says, nobody, nobody sent me. And they said, well, we don't want nobody that nobody sent. <laughs> um, well, I was lucky I showed up and just by sort of being, you know, young and eager, um, uh, was lucky enough to have people say, awesome, great. You'll, if you'll hand out flyers, we'll, we'll, we'll get you involved. And so I started out in local politics and sort of moved up, um, uh, as a state legislator and as a congressional staffer, um, and eventually as the consumer affairs commissioner for the city of New York. And, um, People probably know, uh, if you know New York, you know the famous Flatiron building, right? At the corner of Fifth Avenue and 20-something, and it's, you know, this angle, triangular building. Um, And uh, when I was in uh, government, um, I uh, I didn't know much about the tech community in New York. I mean, I knew that there were some startups that that were getting a lot of attention. And there was a company called DoubleClick, um, and I, I wouldn't have known anything about it except they had this big sign um, uh, by the Flatiron building, and the, and the sign said, um, welcome to Silicon Alley, double click. And they were quite wise. They realized that people were calling New York Silicon Alley, but there was no alley. Um, and so, well, they put up a sign and they announced it and it gave them a lot of attention. So I knew there was some kind of funky company called double click. Um, and uh, all of a sudden I, I read that they're in the newspaper, they're in trouble. They've been tracking people with cookies. Um, And not only that, creating profiles of the different websites you went to. And until now, it was really kind of anonymous. It was just a cookie, whatever that was. Um, And uh, now they were going to append to your identity, 
your name and uh, why? Because they wanted to know things you had purchased in the offline world so they could bring that online. But the media and privacy advocates went, uh, went crazy. They were furious. Uh, you know, nobody on the internet knows your dog. Well, now everyone's going to know, you know, what you buy for your dog and, and what your name is and, uh, you know, what breed and, and well, you know, all kinds of other information and, and maybe the porn sites you visit or who knows what sites you might be visiting. Uh, and so everybody sued DoubleClick, the Federal Trade Commission, different state attorneys general, of course, class action lawsuits. Happens to be I knew a guy who worked at DoubleClick, former political uh, friend, and I called him up and I said, hey, well, you guys are in the news. What's going on? What are you going to do about it? And he explained to me, we were going to hire a chief privacy officer and we're going to do all these things to show we know what we're doing and to figure out what the rules are, because frankly, what are the rules? We think we thought we were just helping websites out. You know, websites need ads. Uh, and right now, all the big companies, they just advertise on AOL or do you remember Lycos and Alta Vista? Those were, you know, the big players. Um, and we double click. We're going to democratize access to advertising. So the little sites, the little bloggers, and the people creating, you know, creative uh, content uh, will just put ads on their site for them, so they can make some money. We're good guys here. We don't understand why everybody's so angry. We're not, what are we going to do to them? We're, we're just going to give them some ads, right? So what year well, was this? Oh, this was night. Uh, uh, this was two thousand. This okay. was about two thousand. And um, I said, "Well, it sounds kind of interesting." Uh, I had been in government. I, I never planned on being in government, but suddenly I'd been in government for six, seven, eight years, and uh, was thinking uh, I'd been elected at a fairly young age. I, I was thinking, "Well, what do I do next here?" Um, uh, well, this sounds interesting. So I became the first chief privacy officer when it really wasn't an, an odd and unusual title. I remember, uh, I think it was Crane's New York Business. Are they still around? Um, I don't know. Um, the business magazine in New York ran a story, you know, mocking, uh, you know, these funny Silicon uh, uh, Alley titles, the chief Yahoo, the ninja, the software ninja, the chief privacy officer, like these things are going to go, you know, out with the dot-com bust. Um, but in fact, there are now, 70,000, just this week, the IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the organization that kind of all of us who do privacy full-time uh, belong to, uh, just hit 70,000, 70,000 members around the wow. world, wow. people working at companies with some sort of privacy title, whether it's the chief privacy officer um, in many countries around the world, a lot of countries in Europe, um, many companies, depending on how big you are and what kind of data you process, um, have to have legally a data protection officer, and it's almost sort of a quasi-independent uh, role, but it's mandated increasingly. Uh, so um, that's how I got into it. I became the chief privacy officer um, of a company that DoubleClick now, many know, belongs to Google and is sort of the um, technology and the division that Google incorporated into its uh, technology to, to serve those banner ads that you see on just about every site in the world. Um, and that was really my first taste of um, trying to get organizations together, companies, competing companies, um, who thought that they were doing wonderful things, right? I mean, these were idealistic people. We're here to help the bloggers and the small sites get some ads and help advertisers, you know, reach customers. Um, it's all good. Why is everybody upset? And so helping them understand and also 
realizing that you can't solve these problems alone, right? You got to have the advertisers involved. You have to have the publishers. You got to talk to the advocates. You got to talk to the academics. The government wants to regulate. Um, uh, you need to get consensus and get people to agree to come up with standards and guidelines and laws so that we can all move forward. And the things that we think are fair uses of data, fair information practices, that's what those of us who work in the space call sort of these historic principles that are generally recognized as the rules for data, fair information principles, and, and really put uh, guidelines in place so that we can have the good stuff we want from the internet and try to limit or constrain the, um, the problems. Well, fantastic. I, I have a number of questions as a follow-up. Well, one thing I wanted to get your opinion on is to what extent do you think the popular conception of the popular endorsement of privacy as a right has changed over time? Because as you were telling that story about DoubleClick and how they were collecting cookies and they were building a profile of you, I was thinking, well, everyone does that now all the time. And most of us don't have a big problem with it. We, we just know that if we say, you know, corduroy pants out loud, probably we're going to get Facebook ads for those tomorrow. Like that's just a fact of life now. So do you think that things have, well, I guess in what ways have things changed over time and, and do you think that's good or bad? So in the modern era, I mean, privacy in many ways goes back to Bible and Talmud. And, you know, if you want to go back, you know, I'll take you all the way back to, to the earliest sources for privacy in the Bible. Um, so, you know, this has been part of uh, Roman law, and Jewish law and Bible law and Quran, you name it, every tradition and every culture has a real deep and interesting history, sometimes very legalistic. Um, uh, you know, there's a famous uh, Talmudic debate of you live in a, an apartment building and you have a window and, you know, you're looking out and you enjoy your view. All of a sudden, your neighbor across the courtyard punches a window through his window and now he can see into yours. Do you have the legal right to say, hey, close up your window, you're now invading my privacy. And there's all kinds of wonderful analysis. Well, was it a public courtyard? You didn't really have any privacy because it was a public courtyard. Anybody could have seen in. No, but maybe it's a private courtyard, in which case you did, and you have some legal rights. So right. <laughs> there's, there's a ton of history. But in the modern era, we go back, unfortunately, to the Holocaust and the Nazi era, where you know, the early predecessors of the IBM computer, the, the Hollerith machines, you know, were used by Nazis to very efficiently record and track and, and use population registries to know where are the Jews, where are the, the you know the where where are the um, uh, you know uh, uh, disabled people, where are the lists and categories of people we need to go building by building right to find out hey is there anybody on our list in this building and so the notion that this automated processing right not just you know, the typical privacy, you know, does anyone know what you're up to? Can you go to the next village, you know, and escape it? You know, in the city, you can be anonymous. You live in a small village. You know, everyone knows your business, right? Those kinds of issues were always around, you know, forever. Could you start a new life, you know, by going overseas? You had some indiscretion, right? Go overseas. Who, who knows, right? The information didn't follow with you. So we've always had those sorts of issues. But the more modern era of sort of digital and automated processing putting these issues in a whole nother scale really were kicked off by the Nazi era where the whole notion that, you know, a government, a hostile entity could use the power of lists and registries and data and, and data to really, you know, oppress and, and kill. And so um, European countries 
And then again, you had a lot of countries, you know, um, um, uh, the Stasi, right? The, the, the secret police, people being paid to inform. You know, if you, you um, visit Berlin, there's a, you know, a phenomenal museum where every sort of little device that, you know, was used by uh, Nazis, by East Germans, by, by, you know, hostile folks to sort of spy on the population, to, to keep registries, to have everybody report on everybody. So in Europe, because of recent history and the notion that the government was spying on you um, or your neighbors were reporting on you um, uh, uh, and the notion that to do that at a population level, you needed computers and databases. So you really had this deep feeling that you needed laws, data protection laws to protect the individual against you know, the power of government and what government might do and due process. In the US, um, we also started becoming aware of um, concerns. Um, you know, when Social Security was rolled out, right? And Social Security, obviously, great benefit, right? The, the first, uh, you know, big New Deal plan that ensured that, that you know, you, you get money taken away and, and, and saved for you, for your employer. But the outcry that existed when Social Security rolled out, because until then you showed up and your employer said, how old are you? Are you married? And if you were a woman of a certain age, you gave the right answer. And uh, you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't uh, worry that they might know that maybe you were married, maybe you weren't married. Were they going to, you know, were you going to, you know, was your husband going to tell you not to work? Were you going to have kids? Uh, it wasn't their business. And there was really no way they could find out. But suddenly you gave in your social security number and you had an official government identity and they worried Will my employer now know things about me that uh, he or she has got no business knowing? So, you know, we, we started seeing areas where people were concerned initially about government. And then all of a sudden, companies came along and started having these same large digital dossiers of, about me. Um, in the U.S., we moved quickly to regulate government. So we've long had a very strong privacy act, right? We don't believe the government should have secret databases, right? We know, yes, that the FBI will spy on us if they think, you know, that we're a threat, right? We have all this history right. of Martin Luther King being spied on and, you know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover having different enemies lists and so forth. So we've long had laws in the U.S. that say, government, you want a database? You declare it. You publish it in the Federal Register. Um, I have to know whether I'm in there. I can make a freedom of information you know, request. It's not perfect. But we get that the U.S. government spies, has to have restrictions, um, has to have a warrant for certain information. They can't just go and demand it. Um, a judge may have to be involved depending on what kind of information it is. So we've understood, as have the Europeans, um, for quite a long time, the power of government and how it can use data because it can put us in jail, um, uh, it can ruin our lives, has to be in check. In the US, however, we were much more open to companies. Well, what do they want to do? They want to show us some ads. They want to sell us some stuff. Not so in Europe. The Europeans, despite the fact that the government really was you know, the actor in World War II and in you know, these, these other countries where uh, surveillance and and uh, and oppression existed, um, but companies were sometimes the tools, right? It was that counting machine. 
So they regulated holistically, and they long put in place rules that said, no, you just can't collect data. They weren't all that serious about enforcing it, frankly. Um, um, and they didn't really fund the independent data protection authorities who they created. In Europe, every country has to have a fully independent data protection authority who cannot be you know, fired by the government because he or she actually oversees the government and you know, tells the government to, to stop you know, doing this or that. It's a bit unusual, though. You have to understand each culture has their own way. Um, in Norway, if you make more than, I believe it's 100,000 euros a year, your name gets published uh, by the tax authority. They've decided that that's an important way to, you know, in a, in a society that is a bit more homogenous than in the US, if you're making that kind of money, well, you got to be there public. So we, we know about that and we scrutinize it. In the US, can you imagine? Or, you know, publishing your income, if you made more than a certain amount of money, it, uh, you'd, go, right. you'd go, you know, we'd go nuts. Um, we can't even see the president's tax returns, right? Um, after years of uh, battling and, uh, and arguing. Uh, in Germany, which has some of the strictest data protection laws, people walk around naked and hop into public saunas, right? In front of the kids. And, you know, here we're, oh, naked, oh my God, right? Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have, so, so each country does have its own uh, cultural norms that maybe prioritizes. And in the US, we didn't for a very long time think that companies really needed to be, we wanted innovation. Um, we believed in self-regulation, the market works, right? We believe in the market in the US. So if people don't like it, then they won't use your product. They'll go to the company with more privacy, right? Apple in many ways is, you know, trying to define itself as the leader on privacy um, and, you know, advertising and, and really talking about it. So privacy has gone from, um, in the US at least, from being something that we, most of us didn't think a lot about unless we really were worried about the government and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and yeah, we read about cookies and, and sort of tracking um, and um, maybe we thought we ought to be doing more to clear cookies, but we didn't really see it in the US as a deep human right. Maybe when it came to keeping government from putting us in jail, we get that that's a human right, right? Don't put us in jail without the evidence, without our right. ability to, right? But is a cookie or is how many emails I get something that is a human right? And increasingly around the world, I think countries, including the US, are coming around to the notion, and it isn't just Tim Cook, Satya Nadella, and Microsoft, dozens of CEOs you've heard echo this notion, and it's actually in the constitution of a number of states that digital privacy, the informational privacy, is actually a human right. So there's there's also the counter argument that we're we're putting more and more power in the hands of individuals, and we're we're seeing more and more incidents of active shooters and uh, that uh, people become unhinged for one reason or another and they go off and do something that's that's very dangerous, and so there's the government has the responsibility to protect society at the same time, uh, so becomes something of a balancing act to actually um, ferret out the dangerous people before they actually go off the deep end. Um, and how do we do, how do we manage something like that without um, at least invading a few people's privacy? Look, we could have um, perfect security and zero privacy, right? We could put a little bug <laughs> on everybody and we could read your brain you know, waves and we could interview you and we could have, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, stop 
stop stop points at every you know point, not just at the airport. Um, but obviously, we then have no dignity, right? We could strip right. search, you know, uh, people whenever they entered a school because they might be, you know, a, a shooter. Um, and we have schools now because look, people people are reacting to the school shootings who are, you know, they want to do something. So they're reading the social media, they're scanning and they're creating databases. These kids are suspect because the technology scanned and they said something, right? And the technology isn't perfect, right? Kid says, you know, hey, did you see that Marvel thing and the big gun that uh, Captain, you know, Marvel uh, grabbed and boom, all of a sudden they're in this, you know, database as, uh -huh. oh, no, we didn't say he's a criminal. We just said that he's been flagged as needing additional review, right? Well, right away, you know, that's not the greatest thing. And, and maybe yeah. kids who are minority kids, maybe kids who are uh, kids with disabilities are going to be more likely to be tossed into that bucket. So you, you said the right word, balancing, right? What is the balance that we want in a society where clearly there are so many useful ways to use data, right? If we if we knew every detail about everybody, we, we'd presumably be able to control COVID, right? We immediately know we could put a put a little you know a thermometer on you or you know uh, another device, um, and and you know we had countries around the world where um, quarantine was quite serious. I mean, maybe we should have been more serious about it here, but when you were put in quarantine, you know you you land in the U.S. and we say, okay, hey, you're coming from a country that's high risk, go into quarantine for two weeks, and maybe we're going to call you, maybe. You go do that in, oh, I don't know, South Korea or Israel or Singapore, you land, you are escorted to a hotel where you are locked in, right, and well-fed for the next two weeks while you are in quarantine. Or you tell us where you're going, you give us the address, and we're knocking on your door twice a day or calling you, uh, and you better put this app on your phone that lets us determine that you are actually respecting the quarantine, and we fine you if we find that you are out when we've said, you know, there's a curfew or there's a limit on how far you can go from your house. So different countries made different decisions um, based on, and again, in the US, we said, don't tell me to wear a mask. Don't tell me what to do, freedom, right? We we had, you know, in many states, uh, and we certainly didn't want the federal government, or even now we're talking about uh, vaccination passports, right? Now that people are getting vaccinated, what are you going to need to travel? What are you going to need to go to school? Um, every college is saying you're going to have to be vaccinated. Many employers are saying you're going to have to be vaccinated. Uh, airlines are saying, well, are you going to shut? Right. So, how are we going to prove it? Well, the federal government said, well, we don't want to be in charge of that. We don't want to create a national health ID. Who knows how that'll be used or misused? So, we're not going to have that we're going to have a hodgepodge. We're going to have a CVS one and a Walgreens one and a, maybe a collaboration, you know, among, uh, you know, many companies. Um, so you're right. It, it is always a balance. And it's actually less about privacy than it is having a process that says, no, you, the powerful player, the government, the company, the person with the data, don't simply get to do what you think is right. You have a process where you take a look, well, what is needed here? Is, is all that data really needed? All I need to know maybe is that, you know, you've got a green, whether it's green because you took a, 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 a test and you have antigens or you had some exemption, right? Maybe I don't need 
to show my license and give away my age and what state I'm in and, and all that sort of information, right? What do you really need? And what are you going to do with it? You're going to sell it afterwards. You're going to use it for advertising. You're going to give it to the FBI, right? I mean, the FBI would be happy to take the data maybe, right? right. What rules do you have? And even if you don't give it to them, maybe they now will know that there's an interesting list and uh, now they know where you went. So um, data protection is about having a set of rules where we say, you got to have a lawful basis. Who says you can do that with it, right? Is it legal? Um, is it really necessary? Is what you're doing proportionate? Maybe it's overkill, right? Maybe you're, you know, uh, we're going to track every single kid, uh, you know, 24 seven and read everything they say on social media because we have a tragedy of, you know, some kids being school shooters. No, that, that's disproportionate, right? We can't, uh, uh, we can't stop and frisk every, uh, you know, human being, uh, uh, you know, uh, regularly. That might create a lot of security, um, but it also might invade privacy. So, and by the way, who's in charge? Do you have somebody independent? Do you have a right to object? Do you have a right to say, well, no, no, I shouldn't be on that no-fly list. Take me off. You made a mistake. There's something wrong, right? So those basic principles are what are increasingly being put into data protection law. So these things can be done in a methodical way. Is there, is there a process that says you have a lawful reason, you have a proportionate response, what you're doing is necessary, I can, I can object, maybe I can opt out, maybe you have to ask me, maybe you don't ask me because we need it, no one's going to opt in, you know, to, 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 to be a suspect, right? But maybe, maybe I need a law saying that you're allowed to do it that is debated by, you know, a Congress and, and uh, can be challenged. Um, maybe um, uh, there ought to be a deletion period, right? Maybe this database doesn't need to be around forever. So those are the tools, those issues of access. Maybe I can make you show me what you have on me. Access and deletion and uh, review processes and balancing those are the tools that privacy lawyers, data protection experts, um, and others try to bring to these questions. And we don't always come to it and say, privacy, privacy. We say, is this actually needed here? And do you have a good reason for it? Um, and what rights do I have? And should it be more limited? And that's how you balance. In fact, in Europe, the main privacy law, when they have a huge, very extensive privacy law, you can be fined up to 4% of your company's global revenues. So, wow. you know, billions of dollars. And indeed, they've been tossing out fines in the many millions against the Googles and Facebooks or even smaller companies. Um, and um, that law, this general data protection regulation, doesn't talk about privacy at all. It talks about data protection for the purpose of balancing the rights and the freedoms of an individual. Is there such a thing as a privacy bill of rights or should there be? Well, our, our European colleagues have the general data protection regulation, which is, you know, in effect, a, a bill of rights that sets the rules for when and how and where information can be disclosed. So you might call it a privacy bill of rights. Do we need a federal, and not just Europe, um, almost every major democracy and even non-democracies, China is almost done uh, passing uh, privacy legislation. But almost every major economy in the in the world now has comprehensive privacy legislation. What did we do in the U.S.? We took a sectoral approach. So yes, we regulated government, and then we said, "Well, your health data—I mean, uh, that needs to go to an insurance company. Uh, 
the doctor's got to be able to pass it around to you know uh, another doctor, uh, the hospital. Uh, so data has got to really be portable when it comes to health. Uh, and we need some rules to make sure that it then doesn't get sent to, I don't know, someone who's going to use it against you, right? Um, so we have HIPAA to regulate the health sector. Uh, and then the banking world, we said, well, wait a second, we don't want the banks telling anybody how much we have. So we created a world, uh, a, a law called GLBA, Graham Leach Bliley, um, uh, uh, and um, it regulates financial institutions. And then people started getting turned down for credit and you didn't know why, um, and you couldn't do anything about it. So we created a law called FICRA for fair credit. Uh, and then cops would go to schools and grab your school record um, uh, or, or tell the school that you were a criminal and that would be on your record and you wouldn't know about it. So we created a law called FERPA. And then kids, we all are worried about kids. So we created COPPA. So we have a vast number of sector-specific privacy laws, more than you can imagine. Um, uh, and uh, But we don't have a general one, right? So the, does Google track me with cookies is not today regulated by the federal government. The states are moving. California just passed a major privacy law. How did it start? Not with the legislature. It took a rich real estate developer who got it in his craw that, that something had to be done. He financed the ballot initiative, right? As you know, in California, you get enough signatures, you can get it on the ballot. And there's always dozens of different things that people in California are voting on. Now they're going to vote on, you know, whether they want to recall their governor. Uh, a lot of states don't have that sort of initiative, but California did. Um, that scared the legislature into passing uh, legislation. The developer then decided uh, he needed to do more. And so he actually then put a ballot initiative that enhanced that legislation. So California now has a pretty reasonable uh, privacy law, and every company does business in California. How do you avoid California? Um, Virginia just passed one, and other states are working to do so while the federal government debates. Now, this is a consumer privacy piece of legislation. This will deal with, so if you are if you live in California now, for instance, and you look at the bottom of an app, you look at the bottom of a website, there's a little link there. It says, do do not sell my information. That was never there before. Any app that sells your data now has to put this little link there. And if you click on the link, you're supposed to get information that says, well, here's what we have. Now, a lot of companies already have that in their privacy policy, but now there's you know some very specific detail. And you have the right to say, send me what you have on me exactly. Show me that file. Oh, and by the way, delete it. I don't, I don't want you to have it anymore. Please terminate it. So that's what California gave. So it's not comprehensive. It doesn't cover everything. It mostly lets companies collect what they want. But it says you have some opt-out rights. You have some rights to not sell. Virginia went a little further. Virginia said, yeah, all that. But if it's sensitive data, if it's health, not the HIPAA health, right? If it's medical information, it's regulated. But if it's health, now, what is that? I don't know. Maybe that's what your Fitbit might know about you, yeah. or maybe. So, so we need to figure out what health means. Um, I mean, what I buy in the supermarket, that loyalty card right. that tracks my eating habits, that is a deep medical record, right? I mean, you, you can see I'm eating fatty stuff, cholesterol, dairy, right? How often I buy, you know, terrible things. Do I eat a lot of red meat? But is that a 
health record or is that just the supermarket kind of wants to know, you know, something about shopping and advertising. So there's going to be a lot of work to do, but Virginia went a little further and you have to opt in for sensitive categories of data. So yes, we need a privacy bill of rights, but the legislators have woken up and they've said, big tech has a lot of data about us. Google has a lot of data about us. Facebook has a lot of data. We need laws that make sure that individuals have rights to, you know, to push back, to opt out, to, 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 to require that permission be asked. Um, and then finally, we're worried about AI, right? AI, everyone's worried about AI. AI is going to destroy the world. AI is going to save the world. We're competing. And so now we're regulating AI on top of data protection. So Europe, several years ago, did this you know, broad data protection law. It kind of already covers AI, at least when there's personal information involved, which is very often. But they're still worried that maybe it didn't go far enough. So they are currently launching a giant effort to have laws for ethical and responsible AI. And the US is probably going to follow sooner than later. So a couple of times you've made reference to data protection, and I'm wondering how that's different from privacy. Is privacy a broader concept and and data protection refers just specifically to the cookies in your browser, the the bits that are broadcast out of your phone? Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great question. And and it's, um, it's got lots of, uh, it's got lots of uh, long answers. Um, (laughs) um, Maybe a couple of ways to think about it is, um, you know, privacy at the end of the day is whether, um, you know, intimate information about you is kept private. Data protection is not necessarily about always keeping things private. It's about having a process that weighs the appropriate rights one against the other and says, what's your basis for doing this? Does someone have a right to change it? You might not end up having, quote unquote, privacy at the end because the decision may be that, well, there's a public health emergency. Sorry, um, your data will be used, but not for any purpose, not for every purpose. We're going to have limits uh, around it. So, um, you know, here, here's another interesting way to think about privacy. And um, Professor Helen Nissenbaum, who's perhaps one of the leading philosophers of privacy, a uh, longtime professor at NYU and now at um, Cornell Tech, she's framed in her writing privacy as a notion that follows context. So think about this. If I walk out naked into the street and people look at me, I, I got no privacy. It's very embarrassing, right? I'm, I'm, I've given up privacy. I'm, I'm, I'm naked in the street. Um, if when I'm in my doctor's office in a different context, I, I take off my shirt, I take off some clothing because I'm getting a checkup, I haven't given up privacy. The doctor needs to look. I want him to take a look and tell me, well, what's going on with this rash or whatever the case is. Right. I'm naked with my loved one. I'm not thinking, well, privacy. I'm thinking I'm very happy about this, right? <laughs> now, if they take a picture and it's used you know, inappropriately. So privacy is about the context that you have when you have a relationship with me, with a company, with a person, and you have mental models, you have certain expectations, and they're very nuanced, right? I hand a little slip of paper to my friend saying something about the teacher or about another person, I don't have a big agreement there. Hey, right. I expect that they will not share it with, maybe they might share it with our other friend who will giggle along, but they better not share it with the teacher. Right. And they're not going to share it with maybe the other person who, who we're, you know, who, who we're talking about. So we have these models uh, 
doctor, lover, friend. Um, uh, you go to a bar. Well, there's a certain you know relationship that might be appropriate. I might walk up to somebody. They're there to meet. Uh, you don't walk up in the same way to somebody in a workplace, right? We modulate how we share, who we share. Um, that's what privacy is. Having some understanding that the way we've exchanged information is appropriate given that relationship at that time. Technology messes this up sometimes, right? I go to Facebook, I put something on the page and not only are my friends there, my employers are there, my college people, right? And all of a sudden there's this mashup and the wrong audience sees the stuff, <laughs> right? It's like you're having, uh, you know, uh, it's it's like you're, you're awake or you're, you're, you know, wedding and everybody's, you know, mashed up in a way that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. So uh, the challenge for technology is how do you respect the context? And that's where the cookie thing comes in. I go to a website. I get that if I've logged in, that website knows that I'm there. They even say, hi, Jules. Hey, here's your shopping cart. Here's what you bought last time. I get it. But when you explain to me that there are other companies embedded in that page, because that's the way the internet works, and they're not just plumbing, some of them are there to collect data about me because this site might want to advertise to me tomorrow on some other site or might be in the business of creating a profile of me so that the ad I see on this site or other sites is more sophisticated, knows the kind of web surfing I do. Hmm, wait a second. That's not the context that I expect. So when that jarring problem happens, right, I feel my privacy has been invaded. Now, if I'm a company who does that, I'm saying, hey, it's all good. I'm only showing you ads here. But the problem is, I don't understand what's going on. And I don't expect that context. Now, maybe you can help me along, right? I maybe can understand there's some co-op, show me, tell me, give me some feeling. And that's where industry, unfortunately, you know, has, has really failed. We haven't helped users understand what's going on there. Now, Apple is trying to do something about it right now. Um, as we speak, uh, Apple has rolled out iOS 14.5, the latest version of the iOS software. And the cookie, right? Mobile devices don't have a cookie. Uh, they do when you're using a browser, but when you're using an app, there's no cookie. So how do we have advertising? Well, all of those third-party advertisers who are embedded in the apps get an ID that has been created either by Google, if you're using an Android device or by Apple, um, and they use that as a cookie and that's how they track you across apps. And that's why if you use apps, you know, you see that the ads sometimes retarget you who they seem to know, you know, which other apps that you were at. So Apple has said, you know, people don't seem to like that too much. So from now on, if you want that, you must ask people. And so starting today and for the upcoming weeks, anyone who uses an Apple device will have been getting a pop-up that says, hey, this app would like to track you for the purpose of targeting ads to you across all sorts of other websites. Are you cool with that? And we're gonna see a lot of people may not be cool with it. And frankly, 40% of all users who use Apple devices have actually already gone in and turned that setting off previously. I mean, there always was a setting it was default on. There always was a setting where you could go in and flip it off and many people did, but most people, you know, Who's paying attention? Um, now, 
people are being asked, and it's a big challenge for the industry. They were living with this, I'll change your contacts, but you don't really know about it, and I don't really need to ask you, and I'll explain it, but you got to read a privacy policy and, you know, go ahead and, and try to read, you know, that legalese. Right. We're now going to see what happens when we actually ask people. I hope it unleashes some creativity because I think the big failure was not figuring out how to properly engage people and say, look, here's how it works. The other option is that you're going to pay for these apps. You want to pay for the apps? Some of you do. Some of you don't want to pay. So we'd like some more data to understand how our ads work, to try to make them more relevant. I'm hoping that we'll see creative ways that companies try to explain to you, here's what's going on. You can, you can, hey, you can even adjust it. You, you want to tell me uh, you like um, uh, scotch? Awesome. We'll give you, we'll give you ads for, 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 for the, you know, the newest uh, scotch uh, that's on the market. We'll, uh, we'll tell her what you want. Um, uh, you want to adjust it? You want So we're, we're in a very transitional time now um, on the web, uh, Google, um, uh, which makes Chrome the leading browser, has the leading market share, has said those third-party cookies, yeah, people don't seem to like that whole tracking thing. All the other browsers already prevent that third-party cookie tracking. Over the years, from that 20 years ago when I was at DoubleClick, where this was default, every browser allowed this third-party cookie tracking. But since then, Mozilla, uh, Internet Explorer, to his credit, Steve Jobs never was that fond of third-party cookies. He always thought they were a little bit creepy. And so Safari has, for a very long time, blocked third-party cookies. And now Chrome has said, we're joining that bandwagon. We also, but since we appreciate advertising, let's work out some alternatives. Can we do this in some anonymous way? And everybody in my world is battling around, debating what's the right way. Is there a model for privacy-friendly advertising that gives the advertisers what they want? How many ads were seen? Which ones are working better? Did the yellow ad in the morning when it was raining to this kind of user you know, result in you downloading and, and uh, becoming one of the people who spends a lot of money you know, in, a, in an online game? Um, uh, so we'll see. Right now, everyone's battling and debating because there are a lot of, there's a lot of money at stake. So let me ask you a question. Let's go 20, 30, 40 years in the future. We suddenly, we have a technology that enables us to track absolutely every atom and every molecule that's going in and out of the human body. Um, and while that sounds radically extreme today, that's very likely going to be possible sometime in the future. Um, how does privacy adjust to not only understanding what our actions are and what we're going to do, but actually understand the inputs and outputs of the human body as well. Yeah, look, that's why we need a comprehensive privacy law that is principle-based sooner than later. Um, we already have a scary amount of data passively collected about us, right? Uh, we're living during the pandemic times where schooling is remote, so we know what you're doing. We're at we're on we're on uh, laptops. We are uh, doing everything on our mobile device, which right. often has our location. There are apps in the app stores that will read your EKG to help you meditate. Um, that already have been shown to be able to know and detect what your password is. 
Uh, AR and VR is here. The Oculus you know, Quest 2 sold by Facebook is selling well. Apple is going to roll out some AR, VR. Um, and AR and VR, collectively XR, you know, um, augmented reality, virtual reality, the next phase for them is to be controlled not by an awkward controller or by you pointing, you know, a mouse at an invisible board, but via your hand. Facebook has a wonderful technology that you wear on your wrist. And again, great for people with disabilities, right? Being able to, you know, control things just by, you know, flipping your wrist or, or minor movements that detect your nerve impulses and your intent. So it's not science fiction. It's at the edge of reality. One of Elon Musk's companies, right? Neuralink, right? right is focusing on embedding things, you know, in, in your body. I don't know that most of us want, you know, chips in, embedded, um, but that will allow you to, you know, control stuff. So um, we already have a world where facial recognition is becoming ubiquitous, right? Whether you like or don't like what happened at the Capitol, and I certainly don't, law enforcement is using facial recognition to scan the faces of thousands of people who are in the crowd and look them up and go find and track them down. So today, most of us, unless you're a celebrity, you know, well, we don't have a lot of privacy online. Computers, the companies behind uh, what we visit know a lot about us, and our phone knows a lot about us. Um, but unless you're a celebrity, you kind of walk outside, you kind of assume no one's looking at you. You scratch your nose, you, you spit, you, you jaywalk. Well, in China, facial recognition and other technologies will zap a penalty to your phone because you, you walked across the street. Um, and in China, we see early efforts to develop social scores. Um, and by misbehaving, saying something bad on social media or crossing the street or doing other, you know, reprehensible things, your social score might affect whether you'll get a job, uh, you know, whether you're allowed to travel. So it's sadly not necessarily 10 or 20 years. And this is why the people who are worried about vaccine test flights, as much as we kind of need a system to deal with this, have a little something in mind because you don't need to prove anything today most places, right? Nobody is saying to you, you want to go to a game? You paid for that ticket with cash? Oh, no. Show me something that certifies something about you. So those last, you know, free zones, my face in public, as soon as my face is like a cookie and I can be tracked and identified anywhere I go, and again, I already can do this with my phone, but I, I could leave it home. I, I could turn it off. Um, so we need soon, soon rules in place, laws that say, hold on there, hold on there. What are you doing? What's your reason? Can I object to it? Do I have to ask you permission? How long are you keeping it? Maybe you should delete it every so often. We need it sooner so that we don't build that Orwellian society we're not for evil reasons. We're not going to run out there and do it for evil reasons. We're going to do it for good reasons. We're going to do it because we want to control the next pandemic. We're going to do it because we don't want school shooting. We're going to do it because we want to know all kinds of wonderful things. Hey, we're reopening. I hope there'll be traffic. How did traffic change? Where are people going? Where's the Uber? Where's the Lyft? Right? We want smart city kind of information. We want health information. We want AI. AI has to have all the data, right? So as to be powered, to be smart. 
all good reasons, right? Good in that people with good intentions, or maybe their worst intention is marketing, but we're, we, we could risk building this database that then gets misused in ways that really are harmful. Right. And again, you know, people have different political views, but, uh, you know, a government that perhaps sees certain people as enemies because they're of a different political party, wow, that's dangerous. And we know how that has played out in history and giving that government the tools. So you know who are the worst actors when it comes to privacy? Not the government, not the companies, the wonderful political actors of the world who must target you with the most micro-targeted ad to get you upset and provoke you to vote. So some of the politicians who are the biggest sponsors of privacy legislation and are very worried about Google and Facebook and are very worried, you know what they do? Go to their campaign website and make a donation. And for the rest of your life, they will be pursuing you around the web, asking you for more money, trying to target you to get you out to vote because you fit into the demographic they want. And then of course, these are some of the paragons of government. So forgive me for a little bit of cynicism uh, there. No, I, I was wondering if you might comment on the interface between technological, cultural, and political solutions to some of these problems. And as you were talking about context, I was reminded of one of my favorite science fiction trilogies. It's called the the Quantum Thief trilogy. It's by Hanu Ryanimi. And parts of it take place on a city in a city on Mars. And there they use a technology called the Gevelot, which allows you to fine tune the information you give to other people, including whether or not they can see your face. So you can just be pixelated in public and nobody has any idea who you are. Or you can broadcast your, you know, EKG or your heart rate to anyone who sees it. So I, I wonder if perhaps you're more sanguine about principle-based regulation that will handle a lot of this. I, I tend to come down thinking that technology has to be devised to fight t technology, uh, problems that emerge from technology. So, and, and then the third thing I said was, was cultural expectations So people valuing privacy more. I, I remember watching an, an interview with Robin Hanson once where he, he was an early cypherpunk. He was very into privacy and he, he looked a lot at the different cryptographic schemes and, and was part of a community that was thinking about how to embed this in the earliest versions of the internet and, and computer systems in connected computer systems. And one of the surprising things that came out of that was that people just didn't seem to care that much. They may bitch about privacy a lot, but when it really comes down to it, many people just will not take the time to go in and turn the thing, the setting on, on their iPhones off that allows apps to, to track them. So it seems like you would need all three of those things working in concert to arrive at a place where you can be sure that the data being collected about you isn't being used for nefarious purposes and that you're not being tracked in ways you don't consent to. You remind me of Gary Steingart's, um, I think it's super sad, true love story or something like that, where <laughs> in his futuristic world, everybody carries around a device and uh, you go into a bar and right away, instead of standing there, you know, like a dope thing, you know, who do I talk to? It, it displays your status, your wealth, your availability, your virility, you know, whatever combination of things. And then everybody kind of, you know, syncs up appropriately. Or I think uh, you might even remember the Black Mirror episode oh, where, yeah. uh, right, everyone's, yeah. you know, rating uh, determines uh, their uh, suitability for an apartment or for friendships or so forth. So, um, look, I think you're right. All three. Let me start with law, because who should be making these decisions about what and where and when, right? At the end of the day, we're ruled by laws. Our process isn't perfect, but we have elected officials. We have democracy. 
And in countries that have a reasonably well-working democratic process, some of these questions of the right balance need to happen in the courts, in lawmaking, in legislating, because you are deciding in many cases who wins, who loses, who gets to be the big company with all the data, can they crush the little actors, who's in, who's out. So you need to start with democratic society. And again, there may be different balances in different countries, right? There are countries in, in the Asia Pacific where the communal, you know, the notion of sharing for research, consider this. Um, in the US, no one's going to take your organs unless you've opted in, you've made a choice that, God forbid, there's an accident, you, you want to donate uh, your organs for life-saving purposes or for science, whatever the case is. In Europe, in some countries, it's the fault you're in, right? unless you've opted out. Now, we actually don't have enough organs. There are people on long, long lists, dying and waiting years. Um, but we in the US have said, nope, nope, our integrity, our bodily thing, our religious, whatever, no, nope, you've got to make that decision. In the countries in Europe that have the default it goes, there are far more many kidneys and other organs you know, available. So there can be some very, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, forget about sharing my email address, right? <laughs> this is like, you know, <laughs> the, the, my physical, you know, body, people have strong feelings about it. So they're, they're going to be, so you need, you know, democratic process. Um, I don't want technology protecting that, right? Like, sorry, you can't access my, you know, organs. I've got some sort of shield on. No, I want a democratic process that is conducted in a proper way. Number one. Number two, technology has a huge role to play. A lot of these are technological problems that could be solved with technological solutions. Um, can we learn things from data that is de-identified in a mathematically guaranteed and certain way? Differential privacy, for instance, is a method for assessing whether de-identifying data really is you know, a, a serious uh, protection, right? right? So it might be super valuable to learn. Uh, we want to know, were certain kids in certain poor communities, uh, children of color, um, immigrants, who was affected differently by COVID? Did, did they die more quickly? Did they lose more education because they didn't go to school, right? We want to know. We need it for research. Are women having more side effects of, uh, of, of a certain vaccine, right? We want to have data but we don't always need personal information. That's where Google is trying to go, for instance, uh, in this advertising path, um, and Apple as well. They say, well, you know what? Um, you really need to take the data off the device. Just maybe use it on the person's phone and make your decision right then and there. Well, what do you got to go build a profile there? Uh, and Google's saying, well, why don't we do some very sophisticated math? If you really just want to know how are the ads doing, maybe we can create some sort of layers and federated learning and right. run reports that give you with statistical accuracy what you need. So I think whether it's um, uh, sophisticated cryptography, um, whether it's, um, uh, uh, let's take facial recognition. Uh, we all put our faces online. We put them on Facebook, we put them on LinkedIn and companies have come across and scraped all that data and created facial recognition databases. Clearview AI, a company that's been in the news, uh, has sifted you know, all of the faces off of all of the social media, we're all in their database. And they sell it to law enforcement. 
So congratulations, you're in the lineup now. You're a suspect <laughs> who is being scanned whenever a law enforcement agency has a picture and wants to know, hey, is this the person at that rally throwing a rock or so on and so forth? Now, some people say, oh, I got nothing to hide, right? Well, guess what? You're in the lineup right. and you certainly want to hope that it's a- accurate. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of evidence that these facial recognition algorithms, um, for instance, are not as accurate on dark skin faces. They don't have as many in the database, the way the technology works. And so you're more likely to be false flagged. Uh, oh, no big deal. They're not going to put you in jail. Well, guess what? That's that's not fun having, you know, cop come to your door, come down to the station, answer a bunch of questions because you got swept into this uh, dragnet. So there are companies doing some sophisticated work um, to introduce noise because they know the way facial recognition uh, algorithms work so that you and I, we, we look at the picture and it looks like you and me and it's fine, but they put in some noise that busts the ability of the facial recognition algorithm to use the kind of mathematical metrics you know that it needs. So I think technology is a key part of the solution, but I need the incentive to do so. And in some cases, that incentive may have to be law because it just might be a lot of money and people may not even notice. And I, next thing you know, you know, the frog has been boiled. But finally, the social is important. It is all of our responsibilities to be thoughtful, right? But I don't want to put all the burden on the user because most of us, we're busy. We don't have time. <laughs> and the next thing you know, we're part of, you know, some massive collection of data that is maybe being used in a way we never could have, you know, imagined. So I do want people to be responsible and not do, you know, the stupidest things. Um, but I understand that, you know, somebody's juggling a three-year-old and they've got a coffee in their hand, they got their groceries and they're trying to open up their car. And meanwhile, they're like, oh, trying to open the app that, that gives them, you know, directions. And I want them to read the terms of service and make like a sophisticated decision about what, <laughs> right. where they want. No, like meet people where they are. And you know what? We're messy, befuddled, confused people. We use the same passwords. Why do we have passwords? We know none of us can handle passwords. Passwords have to be done with, right? We need, <laughs> we need two factors, right? We need alternatives that give me the security. Instead, we're saying, you make up really complicated hard numbers and somehow remember them. And by the way, don't reuse them because you, you'll give them away to some bad <laughs> app and then you're right. How dare we expect that this war? Oh, by the way, change them all the time too. Change them. <laughs> right? Well, very good. No, that's that's true. I'm, I'm just w- one of the banes of my existence is dealing with with passwords, and then the security system at work is really sophisticated. We got to change it all the time, and I'm always forgetting it. Like, and I never and I use a non-standard keyboard layout, and sometimes it's in it's in the wrong version of the layout, and so I what I typed in is not what I remember typing it. Yeah, please tell them that the latest research shows that regularly changing your password is not it, it forces most people to end up using you know. Jules Planetsky one two three, Jules Planetsky one two four, Jules Planetsky one two five, right? Because it's such a pain in the neck. You just keep changing, you know, like one number, or you have a little system, and you haven't really done. Far better to help you, you know, mandate that you use a password manager that handles it all, you know, for you. Um, mandate that there's a, a fob or a two-factor. Um, uh, but um, uh, one of my colleagues uh, at Carnegie Mellon University has done some wonderful research showing that um, you you don't end up getting better, good, hard passwords by forcing people to routinely change their passwords. They end up having, even if you had a really good hard one, they end up having to like, 
Yeah, they can't keep up and it ends up leading to sloppier behavior. Interesting. So in the in the closing minutes here, I wanted to ask what gives you hope? In the, before we started recording, you made some comments about how privacy is a, a few wins you know, with these long stretches of endless defeat. So <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that uh, your answer to this one's going to be kind of short. But nevertheless, what gives you hope? No, no, I'm, I'm actually an optimist. Um, I'm an optimist. Um, <laughs> that, that came across, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you why. There's a famous Woody Allen scene. Uh, he wants to go buy a, like a porn magazine, right? <laughs> and, and he's mortified, right? He goes in and he, you know, he can't find, he has to find this one particular magazine and, you know, he whispers to the clerk, you know, I need, uh, the, and the clerk, you know, yells out, Hey, there's somebody here who needs this and that, right? <laughs> he wanted to read a book about something, uh, you know, uh, discovering my sexuality, uh, uh, communism, how, you know, it really ought to be reexamined, you know, you name the embarrassing thing. I had to go to a library and that librarian who knew me, cause I grew up down the block was going to look at the books and come, Oh, look at that. Right. Look, right. what am I checking out? Um, uh, or I had to go into the, to, to the magazine shop. And now I sit there and here I am on Google and you know what I want to search. I'm going to search for anything I want, any subversive thing. And you know what? Google knows, but you don't know. And my neighbors don't know. Um, and so in some ways, depending on how you think about it, we kind of have a, bit more privacy about certain things than we had before, right? It's e I'm more mobile, right? It's easier for me to flee my past. Um, I can, you know, register anonymously. Again, it isn't perfect and commercial entities and maybe the government. But when it comes to, you know, between you and your fellow person, which is what a lot of us care about exactly, right? right. Uh, the computer, uh, do I care? Cookies, I don't know what's going on. But does he know, right? I'll fill in. I want to know if I have enough money for retirement. I'm sitting there. I'm filling it into some retirement planner. Yeah, I guess the computer is going to know it some third. But I don't want my neighbor or my friend to know, you know, how little I make or, you know, or whatever the case is. So in some ways, we have more freedom. Um, and guess what? You wanted to speak. Well, you had to get a publisher. You had to, a newspaper had to decide to quote you. I can say things. I can register a pseudonym on Twitter. And I can shout. Now, again, it isn't perfect. But in many ways, I've got a lot of freedom. Um, I've got a lot of opportunity to act without judgment. Um, and I'm optimistic that we are going to put rules around these issues because they're not, at the end of the day, solely about privacy. These are now the rights that undergird almost everything else we do in society. My right to move, my right to travel, my right to read about things, my right to speak, um, my, my right to you know, good health care. All of these things need data. And so the decision makers are not simply privacy for you, not privacy for you. There are people who are saying, well, how should healthcare work? How do I improve it? What do I need? Um, uh, we are increasingly aware that there's been a lot of bias in data, right? We've got people who show up and say, it's just a computer. It's just the technology. People are biased. No, guess what? The data came from different kinds of people. Maybe only men were in it. Maybe only rich people were in it, right? Maybe only white people were in it. Um, the technology and the data, I think increasingly people appreciate it is a biased 
you know, ugly package of, you know, stuff. And if you want it to work, if you want to do smart research and you want to understand data, you need to clean it up. You need to organize it. You need to get rid of the data that doesn't matter. So I think at the end of the day, good hygiene, good discipline, rule of law, these careful decisions that are as much about ethics and rights, they're now really big. It's not just geeks like me worrying about double clicks cookies that are having this discussion with other people who are like, I don't know what's the right thing to do. Now it's healthcare researchers saying, I need the data. And patients who have rare diseases saying, we want the data. And others saying, well, wait a second, let's make sure nothing bad happens to you because of the data. So the debate has been engaged. Legislators are acting. The media are over it. And I'm optimistic that when things get that kind of scrutiny, we will put the right structures in place to regulate the power that is actually at stake when you make decisions about privacy and data. Well, fantastic. I certainly hope that you're right. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, this is this is great, Jules. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to speak with you all. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>